from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On this episode of Newt's World, my guest today would much rather talk about beekeeping than politics, befitting a woman for whom faith, family, and community are the central tenets of life. Being a political spouse can upend anyone's best laid plans, and her unforeseen career as wife of a congressman, governor, and vice president has been filled with both joy and unexpected changes. In her new book, When It's Your Turn to Serve, Experiencing God's Grace in His Calling for Your Life, she shares heartwarming and relatable stories about being thrust into the role of leader and how she tackled the unpredictable places to which God called her. I'm really pleased to welcome my guest, Karen Pence. She's a former congressional spouse, first lady of Indiana, second lady of the United States. She worked as a school teacher for more than 30 years. She's the mother of three married children and a grandmother. And I have to say that Calista and I regard her as a personal friend and somebody with whom we've shared very happy moments. We have the greatest fondness for both she and her husband, Vice President Pence. Welcome. Thank you for joining me on Newt's World. Well, Newt, thank you so much for having me on and talking about the book. I'm really curious because I think you have placed this book in a very important way, centered around God and God's impact. Could you just share with us a little bit how your faith grew in your own life and how in the early years it came to really matter? I wanted this book to be uplifting. I wanted it to be encouraging to the reader. There's so many negative books out there right now. And I really wanted to talk about the difference that we were able to make in the first lady's office and the second lady's office. But I did want to give a little background. I mean, it's not a memoir. 
But I did want to give a little background into maybe how my faith started and how it grew so that the reader kind of understands where I'm coming from. My mom remarried when I was about 11, and she married a Catholic man. And at that time, I loved going to church. I asked to be baptized in eighth grade, and I just felt this deep, deep, deep faith, which has never left me. And even when I started dating Mike, I tell a story in the book that, you know, people would say, is she a Christian? Is she a Christian? Is she a Christian? And I felt very judged by that. And Mike said, well, what they're asking is, have you given your life to Jesus Christ? And I said, well, I'm not sure he asks for everything. I think I've been raised that was a selfish thing. And he said, no, he really asks for everything. And I just said, if you can show me that in the Bible, I'm happy to give him everything. But my faith has always been very, very deep. It was after I started dating Mike that my knowledge of the Bible became deeper. But that's kind of where it starts from. So in that sense, when you're faced with a problem even today, do you turn to the Bible to try to find some solution or some solace? One hundred percent. In fact, when Mike and I were looking at this decision on whether or not to run for president, we started in January reading through that Bible you may have seen that's called the One Year Bible, where every day it has readings. And by the end of the year, you've read the entire Bible. So each day you have an Old Testament and a New Testament and a Psalm and a Proverb. And so we started reading through the Bible and really felt like God was leading us to serve one more time to make ourselves available. And so I do think for us, for me, that is what I do. I look to the Bible. And in fact, I just have one cause that I've been fundraising for over the past two years. And it's a Christian high school in Alexandria, Virginia. And it's a school that is teaching these high school kids a biblical worldview. When you're wondering, I hear all these different sides on the news, what should I believe? Like, what does God teach in his word? And so they have a lot of courses at that school where they teach the kids, this is how you search the Bible. This is how you discern what you think God's will might be. What is the name of the school? Emmanuel Christian High School. And it's where I taught in the elementary school for 15 years. I even taught there while I was second lady. I was the elementary art teacher. People who want to help, if they listen to this podcast and they'd like to help, they could go to Emanuel Christian School. Yes, it's I-C-S-V-A for Virginia, I-C-S-V-A.org. And we'll also put that on our show page for people who may want to follow up on it. And reading this, I learned some things about you and Mike I didn't know. Tell us a little bit about how you met him. Well, I was playing guitar in a Catholic church, which I had done for years. And he came up afterward to introduce himself to me and said, you know, I'd like to join that guitar group. And I said, oh, well, you need to talk to the guy with the beard. And he said, I'm Mike Pence. (laughs) So I knew right then it was a ruse, although he does play the guitar and he could have followed up if he needed to. But the interesting thing is that church is right across the street from the governor's residence. And it was interesting that years later, we would end up living in the governor's residence across from where we met. Did you have any idea when you started dating him that he was going to be this politician? 
I did, actually. We went, at that time, the Catholic Church had Tobit, which was a retreat for couples who were considering marriage or engaged couples. We were not engaged when we went on this retreat. But we were trying to figure out, you know, is this something we need to pursue more deeply? And one of the things Mike shared on that retreat was, I want to represent my hometown in Congress someday. And we thought that would be in his 50s or 60s, and it turned out to be much sooner. He went and asked the county chairman, what should I be doing if I want to run for Congress in my 50s? And he said, you should run for Congress. And we met this wonderful, wonderful congressman named Newt Gingrich (laughs) at your schools for candidates. And it was very exciting. We didn't win then, actually. (laughs) That was 88 and 90. We didn't win. So it was 10 years later that we ran again. So in between, what were you doing? So in between, Mike started a radio show. He had worked for a think tank, and he also was an attorney. And I had started a watercolor business. I did watercolors of people's homes. And meanwhile, we had started our family, which took us a long time. We had a lot of trouble starting our family. We had built our dream home and we were pretty set. I mean, the kids were all in school. Our youngest was kindergarten and we thought, great. Now we just live our life. We live the American dream. And Mike was on the radio then and people knew exactly where he stood on the issues. We still knew all of the donors in our district and people started coming to him saying, this is going to be an open seat. Do you think you want to run again? That must have been quite a conversation at home. I mean, you already knew how hard it was, and you knew how much it would change your whole life. Yeah, that's true. We did. We understood all the sacrifices, and I think it did make it difficult. We had just built our dream home, our kids. We wanted to keep our family together if we ran, and so we were faced with raising our kids in Washington, and it was a very difficult decision. And I tell a little story in the book that is about how we made the decision. We had gone back and forth, lots of counselors. We prayed about it. We read the Bible. We just really knew we had to make a decision. And I had saved my watercolor income and surprised Mike with a trip to a dude ranch in Colorado for his 40th birthday. And so we were at that dude ranch. And he and I took a horseback ride up to the top of a bluff in the Teddy Roosevelt National Forest. And we got off of our horses and we just sat down on the side of this bluff and tried to make the decision. I mean, Mike said, we're running out of time. Like we really have to decide, are we going to do this or not? And the first two times we ran nude, you probably may have noticed, we were pretty full of ourselves. We were very arrogant. We just thought we would be God's gift to Washington. And I think that's why we did not win. And so this time we were sitting on the side of the bluff and these two red tail hawks were just rising on the wind. And Mike is kind of a romantic. And he said, you see those hawks over there? Those hawks are like us. And I said, okay, if those hawks are like us, then I think we should do it. I think we should run. But this time, let's do it like the hawks. Let's step off this cliff and make ourselves available to God. And if he wants to lift us up and have us serve, 
with no flapping, then we need to make ourselves available. And that kind of became our mantra then. Every staff member hears that story because we don't want to be forcing our will instead of following God's will. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. So you do run, and this time you do win. Right. And now you end up in Washington. That's right. (laughs) And is that when you started teaching art? Yes, I started teaching art. What happened was you all would have those orientation week in November for all the new members. Remember those days, Newt? And we came out to that and I told Mike, I said, I need to look for a Christian school where the kids can go to school because I didn't want them to be in a public school at that time because I knew we were going to be moving We were just going to rent it first and see if we got reelected. And I already had uprooted them from their friends. So I said, if I can find a private school where I know they won't have to move when we move homes, that would be better. And so actually it was Lana Bethune, Ed Bethune's wife, took me around. She was a realtor. And I said, you know, can we go look at this school? It is Emmanuel Christian School that we talked about at the beginning of the program. And I walked in and they said, we don't have any openings. Every classroom is full. And I said, well, maybe I'll just homeschool this year then just to finish the year. I said, I'm their art teacher right now at their school in Indiana. And they said, wait a minute, we need an art teacher. And right then they said, your kids will be the extra kid in every room, but let's interview you for the art position. And right then I thought, oh my gosh, God is providing this place where I can teach and they can go to school. It was just a three day a week job. And so it was perfect for me. And I knew then that I would have my own network. It wouldn't be all congressional spouses, but I would have my own little world. And it really, really worked out well. I think that's really important just for psychological health, that you have to be a person too. Otherwise, it just doesn't quite work. You can't be absorbed into your partner's life totally. I went through a little bit of that when Callista was the ambassador to the Vatican. The State Department term is trailing spouse. And I took a week-long course on how to trail. And I mean, I had plenty of stuff in my own life, so it wasn't exactly like I was being overshadowed. But it was fun and it was interesting. And it was a real change in dynamic, you know, to have her suddenly be the one who has a schedule and who has a staff and who has security and all that stuff. I can sympathize. Yeah. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. 
Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Newt. In my new book, March the Majority, The Real Story of the Republican Revolution, I offer strategies and insights for everyday citizens and for seasoned politicians. It's both a guide for political success and for winning back the majority in 2024. March to the Majority outlines the 16-year campaign to write the contract with America, explains how we elected the first Republican House majority in 40 years, and how we worked with President Bill Clinton to pass major reforms, including four consecutive balanced budgets. March to the Majority tells the behind-the-scenes story of how we got it done. Here's a special offer for my podcast listeners. You can order March to the Majority right now, at gingrich360.com slash book, and it'll be shipped directly to you. Don't miss out on this special offer. Go to gingrich360.com slash book and order your copy now. Order it today at gingrich360.com slash book. I appreciate what you were going through more now than I ever would have if I had not been a trailing spouse, which is just kind of wild. So one of the things I think that people will find very, very interesting is the whole struggle with infertility that you went through. You have the courage to talk about in the book in a way that I think is very, very human. Could you sort of share a little of that? Because I do think for a lot of people, that's a significant challenge and something they find hard to talk about. Well, and I think, too, that's one of the things about the book. What I try to show in the book is that if God is calling you to a position of leadership, whether that's being a parent or a job or where you're going to move or where you're going to serve, he will give you that grace. But sometimes it doesn't happen right on our schedule. And that was the way it was for us for starting our family, because we married when I was 28. And so we kind of thought, well, we probably need to get this started. And I didn't have my first child till I was 34. So it took us a while. And for us, we went through a lot of challenges. We had to, after so many years, and the doctor kept saying, 
I don't know what's wrong. I can't figure out why you aren't having children. But let's try this one last thing, which actually ended up working and just shut my whole system down and then fired it all back up. This is a lot of detail, but I had so many eggs that month that they almost didn't let me go ahead and ovulate because they thought I would have seven children. That would have been a very different Mike Pence if he'd walked in the room with seven kids. (laughs) (laughs) But I said to them, I'm the infertile one. You can go ahead. This isn't probably going to work anyway. But it did. And that's our son, Michael. But for us, you know, now I look back, Newt, and I say, oh, God's perfect timing. Our kids were a great age for us to be in Congress. They experienced all of that. If it had happened on our terms, it wouldn't have worked out that way. And so now I see in the spouses they met and the experiences they have, I see that his timing was perfect. But at the time, it's very difficult. I remember I tell this story in the book that I had one little niece and at Easter brunch, we're all sitting around the table and She just looked up at me and said, Auntie Karen, why don't you have any babies? And I said, you know, I don't know. God hasn't brought them to me yet. But for us, I understand people being private because we chose to be very private about our struggle because we didn't want people to feel sorry for us. Like, oh, this month and you still aren't pregnant. So we kept it very private. I remember Mike's dad pulling us aside and saying, he said, remember, they don't come out as teenagers. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) You guys need to get started. And so then we went ahead and told him, we said, we've been trying for years and we're glad we got to do that because he passed away before we had any children. So it was nice that he knew at least that we were trying. I know because I've been with you and with now adults, the depth of pride and affection that you have, which I think may have been part of that, that when they did finally come, you really treasured having children. Well, I'll tell you what I'd like to say, Newt, is I am a better mother because of that struggle than I would have been. Not a better mother than my friends, but a better mother than I would have been because on the days when they absolutely drove me crazy or where I thought this kid is going to be living with us till they're 50, I stopped and I would say, hey, wait a minute, you almost didn't have this. So take a breath and go back in the room and deal with whatever the issue was. Does the joy of having finally gotten pregnant and having the children, does that also affect you as you think about right to life and you think about the challenge of abortion in our culture? I think it does, Newt, because Mike and I went through the decision to put our names on an adoption list. And I really struggled with that. I didn't want to go through the teenage child saying, you're not really my mom. Who's my real mom? I just didn't think I could handle that. And so it took me a long time to get to the point where I could put my name on an adoption list. And it was a professor in my master's courses who had said to me, you know what? You need to tell that child when they're young that they're adopted and that you will go on that journey with them. Whenever they want to do that search, you will do it with them. And don't compete with that other mother, you know, the birth mother, but just join in and be part of that journey. And it was like 
all of a sudden I was fine. And so we actually got a call from an adoption agency that said they had a little boy and he was going to be born in July. Well, at that point I was pregnant. Michael was going to be born in November. They were seriously considering us though, because they wanted their child to be the oldest. They knew with me being pregnant that there would be a sibling and Mike and I both struggled separately. And one night we were taking a walk and we didn't know how to tell the other one, I think we should take our name off that list. That's not meant to be our baby. We need to trust that God will carry this baby to term. And we took our name off the list and our son never forgave us because <laughs> he said, what? I could have had a brother. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I get a sense just listening to the stories of you and Mike talk a lot. I mean, you really communicate. We do. We, in fact, we like to walk. We either walk in the morning or we walk in the evening. And that's kind of when we debrief or talk through what we're getting ready to do for the day. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I have to tell you, one of the things in your book that I did not know, I probably should have, but I didn't know, is how much you're into beekeeping. Yes. I, <laughs> I mean, how did you get into beekeeping? 
Well, it's a great story, Newt, because, you know, you are very familiar with the National Governors Association. And every year they have a meeting in February, like a four-day meeting, and the spouses have their own meetings as well. Because remember, if you're going to be the first lady or first gentleman of a state, you're probably only going to be there for four years. You might be there for eight years, but some states, you only are there for four years. And so you can't reinvent the wheel. So it was important for us to support each other. And so we had a presentation. Ginger Beebe did a presentation. She was the first lady of Arkansas. And she did a presentation on her beehive. And I was fascinated with this. And I went back to Indiana and we started a beehive at the governor's residence. And then when I became second lady, one of the first things I asked was, is there a beehive here? And they said, no. And I said, really? Because there's one at the White House. So we started a beehive at the vice president's residence as well. And then we ended up visiting beehives and beekeepers all over the world. It would be a little tag on uh, trip that we would take. And my staff and I learned so much about bees. So when I wrote the book, I thought, you know, wouldn't it be fun to put a little bee fact at the beginning of every chapter that goes along with that chapter's theme. And so that's what we did. We kind of wove the bees throughout. That's really wild. And you actually talk about you made honey out of it, or you took the bees' honey and bottled it. Yeah, we harvested the honey. And the reason I think it was such a great idea that Ginger started this was because honey doesn't have to be pasteurized. It doesn't spoil. So you're not running any health risks by giving honey out as a gift. So we had the little honey bears, and then I did a watercolor of the governor's residence and of the vice president's residence, and we just shrunk that down, and we put it on the front of the little honey bear and gave those as gifts. So when people would visit, we'd say, why don't you take some honey with you? Yeah. I'm curious, as you went around the world and you saw these things, did any of them leap out at you as particularly unusual? Yes. Actually, it was in... I think it was in Montenegro. They gave me, and I still have it to this day, that day we tasted all sorts of products that they had developed from their honey. We did, like we had tea, they had honey wine, they had soaps and cookies. And so we had a whole little tasting session after we visited their beehives. But they gave me this hollowed out log that is about four feet tall, And it's completely hollow because bees used to try to find a hollow tree. And that's where you would find the bee's nest or their hive. And so they gave me one and it stood on a little like limestone stand that says for Mrs. Pence, second lady of the United States. And I brought that home on Air Force Two with me, much to my staff's chagrin. They were like, no, no, it's too big. We can't take it. And I said, I'm taking this. And it sat in my office at the White House for the rest of our time. (laughs) That's wild. The other thing I I didn't realize, you write about the fact that that for PTSD, that bees actually have a calming influence and working with bees actually helps people relax and is actually useful in PTSD programs. Yeah. We visited a couple different programs in the United States. I remember one was in Michigan. And... When our soldiers come back and they have PTSD, 
part of their struggle in becoming reunited or reintegrated into the community is they don't feel a part of a team or group anymore. They all of a sudden are all by themselves. And so one of the things that helps is learning how to be a beekeeper. You know, they take the top off of the hive and the calming effect of the bees buzzing around. It's almost like listening to symphony music. It's very calming. And they suddenly feel like I'm part of a team again. And these bees need me and I'm going to protect them and I'm going to nurture them. And the process is very, very healing for them. When you became the first lady of Indiana, you actually met with all of the previous first ladies. Did you find that that helped you? Well, 100%, because these women were more than willing to share what they knew. And one was a Republican, three were Democrats. One had just taken over for a year when our governor died. But Judy O'Bannon and Susan By, they were the two Democrats. They were especially helpful to me. And Judy O'Bannon, we are still friends. And when we run into each other, we just love to see each other. And Susan By was the other one that sat down with me. When I called her, she said, nope, we're going to have lunch. We're going to go through everything. Bring your notepad. I'm going to share everything I know. And she was fabulous. And she since has passed away, but she was very, very helpful. And then Sherry Daniels was the sitting first lady when I was coming in and she had me over to the governor's residence and showed me around and told me the kind of things that she did. And, you know, some, here are a few tips. And that was very, very helpful for me. Yeah. You mentioned the governor's residence. You talk about it a little bit. It's actually like on six acres of land, but at the same time, I gather it's relatively small compared to some of the governor's residences we've built in the modern era. Did you enjoy living there? Let me just say it was an honor. I mean, whenever you're living there or living in the vice president's residence, it's an unbelievable privilege. But it's not your own home. I mean, it's like living in the apartment above the shop. You know, there are people there all the time. You lose a lot of your privacy. The governor's residence in Indiana is actually on probably the busiest street in the city of Indianapolis. And so there's constant traffic, but you do have the six acres. So it's a little bit of a haven, but the house is pretty close to the road. So it's a little bit difficult for me. I'm kind of a private person. I like to have my own house and my own things. And so that part of it was a little bit hard for me. What was it like to move from that official residence to the official residence in Washington? Well, it was pretty extensive and difficult to manage. And I just say that because, you know, you have the election in November, you move in on January 20th. Now, our furniture was pretty much 30 years old. A lot of it looked like it. And we had gotten rid of a lot of stuff when we went to the governor's residence. So I gave a lot of my furniture to staff. I gave some to a homeless shelter, staff's kids. I'd say, well, look, we've got this patio table. We've got this grill. You know, here's our living room set, our bedroom set. We pretty much gave most of our furniture away. And 
it was necessary then to furnish the upstairs at the vice president's residence. And so we had to meet with a decorator and I just had like one day and I said, I think, because I just got one tour, like about an hour long tour of the house, took pictures. That's really all I had to figure out how to furnish the upstairs before we moved in. And so private money is raised to buy that furniture. Because think about it, if you're moving into someone's house and they're moving out, you don't want them to leave their furniture there. So we didn't want to live on the Biden's furniture and Kamala and Doug didn't want to live on our furniture. And so you have to refurnish. And so I just met with a decorator and I said, okay, what can we get in six weeks? <laughs> what do you have that's available? Show me the bedroom stuff. Show me the living room stuff. And we picked out stuff very, very quickly. And we had amazing movers and amazing people at the residence. And of course, this decorator that on January 20th, they were not allowed into the house until 6 a.m. By the time we got there that afternoon, after the inauguration and the lunch and everything, everything was put away. That's pretty amazing. It was amazing. Pictures were hung. Everything was put away. That's the way to move, Newt. <laughs> I was going to say, that's pretty astonishing. It really was. I thought it was very interesting, given your background as an art teacher, that your first initiative as Second Lady was art therapy. Can you talk a little bit? Most of our listeners, I suspect, aren't fully familiar with art therapy. And I'm kind of fascinated with what you were doing. Well, that's the reason that I picked it as my first initiative. I sat down with Melania and I said, you know, I just want to know what you're thinking about. Because as First Lady of Indiana, I mean, we counted all the things that my hands touched and there were 42 so we had 42, some were minor initiatives, some were pretty major, but I didn't want to be that kind of second lady. I felt like I'm the second lady. I need to see what Melania's thoughts are. And she told me I'm picking one thing. So I thought, okay, then to start out, I'm just picking one thing. And my one thing was art therapy because I had learned about art therapy as a congressional spouse. There is a program in Washington called Tracy's Kids, and I learned about it on a Codell with a Disney lobbyist who heard me talking to an artist, I guess, at Disney, and I was asking questions since I was an art teacher, and he said, oh, I didn't know you were an art teacher, Mrs. Pence. I've got something you might be interested in, and that's when I learned about art therapy. Art therapy is not something I can do. I'm not trained as an art therapist. An art therapist has a master's or doctorate level degree. And for art therapy to work, you have the client or patient, you have the art, and you have the art therapist. Because when these children who have cancer, that's what Tracy's kids is, when these children are in trauma, the art therapist can bring out some of the trauma they're dealing with and help them shut the door on that as well. So it's not something I would want to start with a child going through trauma because I wouldn't know how to process what they're dealing with. The side of the brain injured in trauma is the verbal side. And so a lot of times our vets and anyone who's going through trauma, they can't necessarily talk about it at first. And so I started learning when I was First Lady of Indiana about how successful art therapy is with our vets. 
and I observed a program in Indianapolis called Combat Paper. And our vets are invited to bring their uniform because remember, Newt, they've worn this uniform their whole career and it's who they are. And now all of a sudden, they're not wearing the uniform. And so they bring their uniform, they cut it into little tiny pieces and they put it in a pulp machine that turns it into paper and you roll out this thick paper and then that veteran can put something new on that paper. They're transforming that uniform into something new. So it's a process. And when I started learning about that, I started thinking, well, this is fascinating. When I became second lady, I thought people need to know about this. My initiative started and it was three-pronged. First, we just want people to know about this program because if they're going through trauma, this might be the therapy that helps them. Second, we wanted universities to provide more courses on art therapy. And third, we wanted to encourage young people to go into this profession. And so that was kind of our focus, making people aware of what art therapy is, because most people don't know what it is. That's how it started. I just want to say that you and Mike have been remarkable citizens at every step of the way. It's a great joy to close to me to know you. But I know you're in the middle of a race right now, and having done that myself, there are a few things more exhausting than running for president, but you've done something really good for people of all backgrounds, whatever their political view. You've written a book that's real, that's about life, and that has real lessons and real insights, I think, that virtually everyone could profit by reading. I just want to tell you how much I admire what you're doing, what Mike's doing, and how much I think... You have done a remarkable job of leading a fully parallel life of remarkable experiences. And I think a lot of people will find their own lives are changed and enriched by reading when it's your turn to serve, experiencing God's grace and his calling for your life. And I just want to thank you for joining me and take some time. And I appreciate so much your service and Mike's service to the country. And you've shared a very deeply personal journey. And I want you to know how much Calista and I share a sense of cherishing your friendship and cherishing being able to be on that journey with you. Thank you, dude. It's been a privilege. Thank you to my guest, Karen Pence. You can get a link to buy her new book, When It's Your Turn to Serve, Experiencing God's Grace and His Calling for Your Life, on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, We've summoned something from this board. 
This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 